Amy was looking for a resource to help her grow closer to God and live out her faith in tangible ways. So whenever I found Focus in the Family and started listening to the various episodes, I guess, found that so much of what was being covered were things that I needed in my life. Our podcast inspired Amy to volunteer at a pregnancy resource center, and she realized she could help save even more preborn babies through monthly giving. You are one person, but whenever you donate to Focus in the Family like I do, it magnifies your impact. Focus in the Family is able to touch millions of people. I'm Jim Daly. Join Amy and Focus on the Family in the ongoing fight to save babies and their moms from abortion. Become a monthly giver today at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash family. This is Lisa Anderson with The Boundless Show, and here is what is coming up in just a bit. Later on for our inbox, a listener was recently asked about the topic of embryo freezing. How can she navigate this tricky subject when she is talking to other people? Well, our uh, friend Dave Davis, who is a medical research analyst, is going to answer that question. And then for our culture segment, our own Tim Gegline. Uh, he works in our Washington, D.C. office on all things government and public policy, is going to share about how Christians can be engaged in the culture, even amid the political exhaustion, and also talk about learning from our nation's history. So here we are for our roundtable, though, and we're going to have a spirited conversation with our friends, Kristen, Brittany, and John. Hey, y'all. Hi. Hi. Hey, Lisa. Um, We're going to talk about seasons of life changing. So we tend to think that we just walk through seasons of life and it's just going to be like, okay, on to the next one, on to that. But I think some of us get stuck in seasons and some of us maybe run through seasons a little too fast and some people just ignore seasons or hope that they'll go away. So we need to have a conversation about this, and it's a very apropos one because we are now like, I feel like for most of the U.S. at least, we're very anticipating spring if it hasn't come already. In Colorado here, we can never just call it spring because we know we get snow in June, so it's just kind of a downer. (laughs) But for those of you in the precious south and everywhere else, you actually have flowers, so don't even write to us and talk to us about it. Okay. (laughs) Meanwhile, that was just a little side note. That's a bonus for all y'all. I want to start out actually asking you guys about spring. What are you, what excites you about spring? What are you most excited about now that we're talking about So you mentioned how we get snow in June. I think the latest I actually have seen snow here was May. But typically in the springtime here in Colorado, I find that I'm able to go on longer drives because the days are longer and um, also the roads don't have quite as much snow on them for the most part. So getting in my car and going for a long drive while the sun is setting is something I'm really, really looking forward to uh, for the springtime. Yeah, I feel like um, I have read before, and I'm almost positive this is correct, that July is the only month on record where Colorado has not recorded a snow. So we have had snow in every other month of the year. So not that we want it to happen this year. So, all right, Brittany, how about you? Here in Colorado, it is snowy for quite a bit longer than, well, it didn't snow where I grew up in Southern California or where, where I went to college in Texas. So... The spring means 
it transfers from skiing season to hiking season. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful transition because by the end of ski season, your feet are kind of over it. So you just <laughs> decide to torture them in more comfortable shoes going for longer amounts. And so, yeah, spring to me means the start of the hiking season. So I'm excited for that. Okay, cool. Mine is not weather related. Sorry, I'm going to start school in the spring, hopefully, Lord willing. So I'm super excited about oh, that. Nice. Yeah. That's absolutely great. Good. All right. What? Um, let's talk about seasons of life now. And so what is a time that you often look back on and say, wow, that was a really good season? What do you think of as just kind of one of those like, yep, yeah, I would go back there? I still remember the way it felt growing up in the Deep South when we would get into really the prime of summer and it was in the evenings and also times during the fall when the colors were really pretty. Two things that really stand out, especially from childhood that I look back on say, wow, that was a beautiful season of life were 4th of July fireworks in Mm -hmm. the summertime Mm -hmm. and also apple picking in the fall. Those were two things that I look back on and say, man, those were fun traditions that also created beautiful seasons of life. Mm -hmm. I know this is totally cliche to say, but for me, it's college. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because it's the one that most recently passed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a great opportunity. I moved away from family for the first time and it stretched me a lot in more responsibilities, financial wisdom, finding my own church, building my own community outside of my parents and my family. So it's just a really good season of growth and seeing the Lord provide. So it was really great. And I'm sure that once this season is over, however long it's going to last, I'll look back on this season similarly. You know, that was Mm -hmm. a great season of learning and building community and growing a lot. So, yeah, I kind of look at it like I think the best seasons are ahead of me. Like I still haven't hit them yet. But (laughs) looking back, I think my childhood just in general was a good season. Mm -hmm. I'm close with my family and kind of similar to John, just those more specific memories like family game nights and vacations to Lake Tahoe and things that just had a lot of good family quality time, I think, are what I value most. And I look at those as being a good season, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I feel like for me, there were elements of high school that were really good, which is funny because, I mean, there's like 0% of the population that says junior high ever. (laughs) Probably just probably like 4% of the population would say high school. I don't know. But it was just a good, it was a fun time for me. I was involved in a lot of stuff. I was in a marching band that actually was good. Good, and we mm-hmm. traveled and did a lot of internet, like a um, national and international gigs and stuff. Um, and then college was cool too. I went away to college. I met so many great friends, many of whom I'm still in contact with mm-hmm. and stuff. And it just felt like, you know, there was always some new opportunity and something new mm-hmm. to do. And so that was good. Um, and there have been a couple of recent ones too that have been really great, especially in terms of like spiritual growth for me. I think have been really good ones as I look back. Um, okay, well, we can't ask that without asking what's been a hard season for you in life. Brittany, you better have one because if all your good seasons are ahead of you, you better, <laughs> you better have a dog or two to share with the rest of us. Oh, definitely. I mean, I loved college as well. I think it had some of the highest highs of my life and the most exciting and most memorable times, but also definitely had the lowest of lows in college as well. Um, I think my most difficult season 
was during COVID, but not because of COVID. Because now I feel like COVID's the cliche answer. It's like, <laughs> oh, I struggled during COVID, but like mm-hmm. everyone did. But I was just in a really bad relationship and it was coming to the end of it, like kind of when COVID started. Mm-hmm. And so I went on a birthday vacation with all my friends and family where my ex-boyfriend came and that was kind of the final straw Mm. and I knew I had to break it off so I did but I went into full like I'm retreating into the mountains I'm too (laughs) embarrassed to face anyone after this like horrific trip Um, and so everyone was so worried about me because I just wanted to be alone and then it was COVID so everyone was already isolated Mm. um and so it, I, I did go to the mountains, um, <laughs> maybe not for as long as I said I would be in the mountains, but I still was there, did a lot of reflection um, and prayer. But yeah, that season for me was just really difficult, like the end of that relationship into the mourning process after and having to face my friends and family. Yeah. Okay. Two come to mind for me. One would have been high school, which actually was a really good time for me. But emotionally and socially, it was kind of lonely because Mm -hmm. I was homeschooled, which was great. And I got involved in a lot of co-op groups and took other classes with homeschoolers. But it didn't have quite the social structure that college had. And so I battled lots of feelings of isolation during that season. And following up on what Brittany said, the start of COVID was definitely very tough for me. But it was mostly because that was right around the time that my mother passed away. Mm -hmm. And so... I think she passed away about two months after certain lockdowns started mm-hmm. coming in place. And mm-hmm. so all that combined at once was a very, very tough season. That's hard. Yeah, that is hard. I think my season is also college. It was it was the highest highs and the lowest lows. But, um, I mean, being away from home, while that was a great opportunity to grow, it was also really rough. My freshman year my roommate never showed up Mm. and so I remember thinking oh well maybe she's just moving in a little bit later and then week two hit and I was like she's never coming (laughs) and um so then I was alone at this college I didn't even know existed before I applied and (laughs) you know all all of these just unfortunate combinations of things and then my church there was great at teaching and instructing um, but I had a really hard time building community at my church and so then for like two and a half years maybe three years it felt like to just really really trying to build community so I think yeah college was it was great but it was also really hard um, but I think one of the reasons why I look back on it and it's so sweet is because I see how the Lord really um, taught me long suffering and patience and faith. And so it's just really cool that even though it was really rough for a while, (laughs) he was so faithful all throughout. So that's good. Mm -hmm. I think I would share for mine. I'm also going to share it in the context of my next question. So I want you guys to think about this kind of like seasons where, as I alluded to at the beginning, like you've gotten into this season and maybe by some of your own choices or non-choices, you've just gotten a little stuck and you're not sure exactly like, do I need to do something big to get out of this or do I need to get radical or be like whatever? Um, for me, I'll share a hard season was my first time in Colorado. I came out here, um, worked a job and I lived here for a year and a half. And I guess I just never, for me, my stuckness was, I don't think I ever really put both feet here and I didn't, 
I didn't really invest. I didn't make a lot of great friends. I didn't really plug into a church. So if you put I didn't really before every single thing, that was my year and a half here. I just kind of felt like, am I really committing to this? Is this really in my best interest? Is this really something I'm into? And so um, it just ended up being a really hard and lonely season and just kind of kind of lame overall. And so then I left, you know, because I, and I did, I'm, I'm not one who avoids forcing change on myself. So at least I have that. Um, I was like, time for a a move. And then I moved into another hard season by making that move. So, but at least I did kind of stop the inertia on that front of just letting things kind of devolve uh, where they were. So what would you guys say as far as like, have you had any clues in your life of like, something here has to change or I'm going to end up being stuck or not knowing what to do beyond this? That's such a good question. This actually happened to me the other day at church. And <laughs> oh, no. Stuck yeah. at church. Here we go. So I recognized this in kind of my own mind. So in my church, towards the end of the service, we take communion. And before we take communion, we actually do a prayer of confession. And the other day, I literally caught myself, and this was not, this was not good, but I caught myself recognizing the fact that during the prayer of confession where I'm saying, God, I repent and God, I need your help. I was focused the entire time on people who've gotten on my nerves recently (laughs) and focused on this needs to change in that person, that needs to change in that person. And then that same day I got the notification of how much time I had been spending on my phone. And I'm like, Mm. wait a minute, I probably need to rein (laughs) this in a little bit. So that was an indicator to me that I need to be more disciplined with how much technology and screen time I'm using. Okay. Yeah. It's weird how it can affect kind of your, your mind and your heart and stuff. Brittany, how about you? I think the first step to get out of a comfortable season is to acknowledge it, like acknowledge that you've been in it too long. Like even bringing it back to my ex-boyfriend example, like I knew that I probably should end it way before, but my mom and best friend were like, yeah, you probably should. But if you don't have peace about it now, like you're the only one who can know when it's actually the right time. Like you just keep praying about it. And one day God will just make it so, so clear that like you're just done and you're ready to move on. And so I feel like that along with a lot of other examples kind of like I can relate to the moving to Colorado thing as well Lisa like I would cry on Sunday nights when my now fiance would like leave after dinner because I'm like oh like another week and this is so horrible and you know one day I just was like oh my gosh this is so sad like why am I not being positive about this new experience and I kept praying that God would change my heart and then one day I kind of woke up and was like okay, we're doing it. We're moving past this phase. And so I feel like it starts with acknowledgement and continues with prayer. Hmm. Yeah. I think that prayer has been huge in every season of my life, just knowing where God is asking me to go. But he also makes it just super obvious through circumstances, which I know he speaks to different people in different ways, but he's always made it just really obvious. So when I applied to school for college, I applied to a the wrong school and I didn't know where I was going and then God opened up every door and I was like I guess I'm going to Kentucky to a school I've never heard of and he made it really obvious and with no roommate yeah exactly it was so good but and then moving out here I didn't want to stay I also didn't want to go to Kentucky and I didn't want to stay here um, but God made it super 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 clear that that's what I was supposed to do and now praying about this season like when you know 
am I supposed to move on and what mm-hmm. is next and what does that look like? It's really difficult because middle school lasts three years, high school lasts four, college lasts four, and now I'm outside of like <laughs> <Yeah>. these timelines <laughs> that are structured by the government, yeah, so you know, true. and now I'm like, oh, I make up my own mind. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so it's it's a little bit harder, but God has always given just great peace and great guidance, which has been really helpful. So prayer good community to yeah. pour into you. Well, and that brings me to my next question, which is kind of like, you know, sometimes we get ourselves stuck, but sometimes we look at where other people are and we feel stuck, like regardless mm-hmm. of what opportunities God has put in our life. So here's here's a fact. You can look in any, like your group of friends, your family, whatever. Someone is always going to have more opportunities than you. Someone is always going to have a better career or be further in their career than you. Someone is always going to be in a relationship if you're not or a better relationship, or you would have thought that by now you'd be dating, you'd be engaged, you'd be married, you'd have kids, you would be more settled, you would have more money in the bank, whatever. How do you guys reconcile that? Like, how do you avoid the comparison trap of just trusting God? Like, this might be the season I'm in. And when do you apply what we talked about last? Like, okay, how do I pray towards maybe some change? Or is there, you know do I stay here? Do I go? What, you know, because some things we don't have control over and some things maybe, you know, through prayer and a little bit of shifting, we could move. One of the things that God's really been teaching me in my walk with him is that it's great to be content where I'm at. And at the same time, I'm only in control of me. I can celebrate other people and their accomplishments and their joy and their engagements and that sort of thing. But real joy is found when, I know this may sound a little overly simplistic, but the key to joy, honestly, is to have a regular daily habit of saying, yes, Lord, even when I don't want to do Mm -hmm. something, because joy is in becoming who God has called me to be. And so if I'm focused on, okay, how can I grow? And I'm not obsessed over, here's what this person has, here's this, this person got this blessing, and that person got that blessing, then honestly, it kills a lot of the comparison Mm -hmm. because, I mean, to be really honest here, I'm a full-time job managing me and managing just, (laughs) I mean, and and God's given me responsibility to say, hey, uh, take take ownership of your own life, John, and Mm -hmm. other people and their blessings and their decisions, I'm not in control over that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, maintaining myself and making myself get out of bed in the morning and go to work, I mean, that that is a full-time 24-7 effort. So. Yeah. And stop using your communion confession time to worry about other people. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, that's something all of us could benefit from, I'm sure. I, I mean, two words, social media, guys. That <laughs> is, you know, the breeding ground for comparison these days. And it's so hard to just completely separate yourself from it. Like, Okay, wedding things that I've been doing, it's like you see these things on Pinterest, Instagram, TikTok of how you should be doing and what you should be doing. So then in my mind, it's set like that's what and how I should be doing it. But then if you like, I take a step back and actually think, well, that's not what I want. Like I decided I didn't want a 250 person wedding and I wanted it to be more intimate. But my whole life, I thought that I wanted to invite every person I've ever met (laughs) once to my wedding to celebrate because that's just what people do. And so a lot of it, I feel like is breaking down what you think you might have an opinion of to figure out what you really think, because 
God makes everyone differently. You're all mm-hmm. called to serve in different ways. And just realizing that and living in the present is huge. Kind of like to your point, John, like it is a full-time job to take care of yourself. And I think that includes your thoughts as well. Like you really, for sure, you really need to rein in your thoughts to stop the comparison game and to realize what you want, not what other people think you want. You said something that I had been thinking about is that God calls and and equips everybody differently and distinctly. And something that I really struggle with in comparison is thinking that my convictions and my methods are better. So pride, it's a big thing I deal with. But um, especially in the career that I would like to pursue, there are a lot of different methods and strategies. And it's like, oh, well, the one I want to do is the most biblical, you know. Um, so that's something that I struggle with com- with as far as comparison goes. But just recognizing and realizing that God has equipped everybody to do something different in life. And if everybody's life looked exactly like the one I want to have, it would be a very weird world. You know, if they're just a bunch of little Christians running around (laughs) getting their masters, you know, like Mm -hmm. it'd be really silly. And so, um, that's something that I have to regularly remind myself of, um, no matter what is, I don't need to look down on this person for the things that they're doing. They're not sinful. They are living their life. It's just not in the same way I'm called to. So a good point. Okay. Just like in the last minute here, what are your thoughts on, because I'm thinking relationally, like specifically seasons of friendship Mm -hmm. where, again, I feel like social media is the culprit here too, because social media has opened our worlds up to every person in our life, past and present. And everyone expects to be on the same level as the next person and have you involved Mm -hmm. in their life. How have you guys had any experience in kind of just having to let friendships go on the fade or quite frankly, cutting them off or being like, uh, that was for a time and place, but now I've got all these new people to invest in. What, how do you, how do you do that both internally and then having the conversation just quickly? For sure. I remember there was a really special time in college where I was part of a men's prayer group. And I look back on that and say, that was a beautiful time of spiritual growth for me and my friends who were a part of that. And I would say now I'm probably in touch with about half the group. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that many of them, even though if I were to get in touch with them today, we we could still have a great conversation. A lot of it is that they have gotten married and are now having kids of their own. Some of them I am still in touch with, which is awesome. But I look back on that and say that was a beautiful time where God met us all in such a special, special way, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And now their priorities have changed a little bit, and so we're on great terms. And if I were to see them, it'd be cordial and stuff like that, but the needs have changed, and now they have mm-hmm. to prioritize their spouse. They have to prioritize their kids, and that's great. So it's mm-hmm. just the seasons have changed, and recognizing the fact that God is still good and all of that is what brings joy. Mm-hmm. I used to be behind the mindset of friends are forever, and once you're my friend or we're friends, that is something that is unbreakable. Mm -hmm. And as I've grown and matured to the ripe age of 23, (laughs) I've realized that that's not always the case. Like, people are put into your life for a reason and sometimes for a season. And I had two really close friends growing up through middle school, high school, even most of college. And it was great during that time period. They were super loud and bubbly when we met, and I was a total 
quiet person. And so they really brought me out of my shell and I spread my wings and became a lot more outgoing and extroverted. So I owe so much to them for just uh, having that role in my life. So as we got older, it just was not a two-way friendship. They would leave me hanging a lot. They didn't put in equal effort. And honestly, it became really emotionally taxing because I grew Mm -hmm. up with them being my best friends and then they kind of just slowly faded. Not that we didn't consider each other best friends, but there just wasn't effort. Mm -hmm. And it became really, really hard. It took me years, probably four to five years to let go of. Mm -hmm. And just now recently, I feel peace about it. Like, I invited them to my engagement party they didn't come, but that was okay because I knew they probably wouldn't. And there's no harbored feelings anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay just being casual friends with them and having them in my life. And it was a really good lesson for me to learn that they really were there for a reason and a season and God had a plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think three questions come to mind to consider with friendships is how intentional are you both being? How reciprocal are the feelings and the desires to hang out? And how burdened personally am I to maintain that relationship? So I have three friends in mind that when I would come back to Oklahoma from college, I would ask all three to hang out. And one was super consistent. She would ask when I was going to be in town. So that was a super reciprocal relationship. Another one, every time I would ask her to hang out, she wouldn't have the time. And so that was where I was intentional and she wasn't. And then there was another friend that we would make plans and then she would always back out. And these are all friends that I loved a lot. And the third friend, I knew that she was going through a really hard time. I loved her. She's one of my oldest friends. And so I didn't care how many times she flaked on me because I felt super burdened. No, I am supposed to be your friend for forever. (laughs) And the other two... I didn't feel that strongly about. Um, So I was blessed to be able to maintain one. We're still friends trying to get her to move out here. She's not coming. It's sad. Um, But so those are the three questions I kind of. And that's good that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people don't recognize the value of like praying over a relationship Mm -hmm. and recognizing that like the Holy Spirit will be faithful to guide you as to. Should this friendship continue? Should it be at the same level it was before? I think a lot of us are in relationships where they work because we have a point of context, like during the week. Like, that's Mm -hmm. me with my small group. We all go to the small group every week. We catch up on one another's lives. If we didn't have that, it would be super hard with every member in that group to be doing individual coffees Mm -hmm. with them at different... You know, that's the other thing is you just don't have the time to do all these separate meetings and whatnot. So I think that's... um, a hard thing to reconcile. Whereas being single, I have a housemate who we see each other every day. We're in each other's business. We do life. And so it's very easy to stay connected to her and consider her a very close friend in that sense. But I think that just makes sense. Sometimes you have to recognize what's a natural environment for that and what's not. And he has to guide because on paper, all three of those friendships would have looked the same. So if I was just going off of like my intellect and how should I analyze these things, then I should have treated each of them equally and without prayer about it, I would have been totally confused. For sure. Good. Well, you guys, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you sharing about this because I think seasons affect us in different areas of life and in different times of life. And so I hope that this will really give folks some things to think about. So thanks, y'all. Yeah, thank you. Thank you,
All right, folks, we are here for this week's culture segment, and we get to invite back a friend of Boundless and a colleague of mine. We have got Mr. Tim Gegline here. Tim, great to have you. It is wonderful to be with you. It's always a pleasure. Well, this is is our privilege, of course. Um, we have you do so much, and it's not often that I get to see your face um, because you are out in Washington D.C. Um, so we've got all of our international listeners, but they're not Americans. Most of our international friends actually know cities of the world and like where they are. <laughs> So they're, uh, they know where Washington, D.C. is. That's good. Um, and so, uh, Tim, for those of you who don't know, he's our VP for External and Government Relations here at Focus on the Family, but he's located in Washington, D.C., really responsible, I like to say, for being Focus's liaison for all things public policy out there in Washington, D.C., the relationships that are forged there and cultivated and keeping an ear to the ground of, of what's going on in our nation's capital. Um, but also a writer, speaker. Uh, he was, for a time, special assistant to President George W. Bush uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, even part of his original 2000 campaign staff. And uh, Tim, it is always so great to have you. Uh, today, we're going to actually talk. You have, you know, I mentioned you being a writer. I'm like, with all that that you do, apparently you just sit around and write books occasionally, too. So <laughs> in your free time, despite being married and having now adult children, right? Yes, that's correct. Are we, we, Jenny and I have two sons, Tim and Paul, and they are in their 20s. Wow. All right. Well, right in our wheelhouse here. So, um, But you have written Toward a More Perfect Union, a book, and the sub on that is The Moral and Cultural Case for Teaching the Great American Story. And so everyone is already intimidated because they're looking back at their, you know, school years and saying, "Okay, well, I didn't really pay attention. I don't know where he's going to go with this. I don't know if I even know the context of what Tim wants to say here. So that's okay. We're going to handhold you through it. And so I want to start off with this, Tim, because you actually make the case in the book, You well, the statistic, you say that only 3% of students today would be able to pass the U.S. citizenship test and yeah. I'm not sure if it's just students. I feel like students should be higher because didn't they just learn this stuff? I feel like older adults were even more ignorant, like, oh, that was way back in the day. But talk to us a little bit, because you really lay out this the problem in the book. Why do we not, as Americans, and again, international friends, hang in with us here because we're going to have some broader principles, but why do we not generally know about our history? What are some of these statistics revealing? Well, I thank you for asking, and that's a beautiful way to start our, our conversation. Uh, you know, when I uh, first approached uh, the narrative of the book, uh, I thought to myself, uh, maybe it's mostly just, you know, poor instruction uh, or, uh, you know, kind of dereliction of duty, you know, uh, in different quadrants uh, of, our, of our culture. But what I found overwhelmingly is that mostly it was intentional. And that's not conspiratorial, quite the opposite. What I mean is that beginning in the 1950s and 1960s, there was an intentional uh, goal of erasing American history, of saying that there really was not an American story. It was the beginning of what we now call erasure culture, cancel culture, wokistan. But it really did not begin yesterday or you know, a few years ago. It really began with a historian uh, called Howard Zinn. This is a name 
that really everybody who cares about the teaching of American history, who cares about uh, Western culture, Western civilization, and the teaching of good history, it really begins in, in, in measure with Howard Zinn. In fact, I devoted an entire chapter of Toward a More Perfect Union to Howard Zinn. In, in, in some, Howard was a very important academic, but he was a person who did not like America, and he didn't like Western civilization, and he did not like fact-based history. And so he ended up writing uh, what is called, you can only make this up, by, my friend, uh, you really, it's like something out of, a, out of a cartoon. It was called The People's History of the United States. You would think, gosh, The People's History, you know, uh, this is a story that has a beginning and a middle and, you know, on we go. But in fact, uh, it was purposely propagandistic. Hmm. It was uh, purposely misleading. Uh, the idea of misinformation, and I might even say neo-Marxism, is all over Howard Zinn's work. And as the great Abraham Lincoln said, it's not good enough just to, to assert. You have, you, know, you have to demonstrate. And in the book, I demonstrate, uh, and for purposes of our conversation, I demonstrate what I mean. What I mean is that he, um, I'm, I'm going back to Howard Zinn himself. He refers to Western civilization, I'm quoting him, as the religion of popes, the government of kings, the frenzy of money. I mean, that seems right out of Marx, doesn't it? Uh, among other things, by the way, uh, he states that America became involved in World War II to protect, and I'm quoting him again, to protect the imperial interests of the United States. So the bottom line is that Howard Zinn's version of history is now the dominant one, which is taught in our education system. And it was rooted in an intentional uh, goal. Of, of changing the narrative. And I'm very sorry to say that by and large, that is now the dominant narrative that is taught in elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, college, and, and beyond. And uh, I, I think it's very important that we understand that this propagandistic machine uh, has terrible implications uh, for the future of our uh, remarkable country. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. And it makes me think how it, it's so weird, because when we generally talk about this, I feel like most people will say, OK, well, you know, it's good to take an honest look at history and we should learn from the past. Anyone will yes. say, even on a personal level, we should learn from past mistakes. We should learn from past successes. Most people will say, you know, we have a, a ton of patriots in our land. People love being American. We love, you know, we just had a a, a Super Bowl uh, uh, several weeks ago now where everyone was so excited about coming together, you know, and celebrating that that camaraderie around sports and, and being on the same team, at least related to that. But Talk to us a little bit about why are we learning? Why is it necessary for us to learn from history? Like, what are some of the good lessons that have been laid as a foundation for us as a nation that anyone can benefit from in the sense of this is this is kind of why we became great. And honestly, knowing these things and and implementing them and um, even replicating them does make us better citizens. You know, I, I could not agree more. I, I mean, I really do. I completely agree. Uh, you know, toward a more perfect union is rooted in a very simple view, which is that we have one country. We don't have 900 countries in one country. Uh, there are not 15 stories. There's one story. And it is the story of all of us 
who are either native-born citizens or citizens by choice. That's the extraordinary uh, nature that is baked into the cake of the American experience. Uh, for instance, if I may say, there is a, a rather uh, malevolent uh, new project called the 1619 Project. Uh, you know, this was uh, uh, cooked up, if I may say, uh, by both the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation. They, they poured a lot of money into this. The 1619 Project is now being taught in thousands of schools around our nation. It's not fact-based history. It's kind of Howard Zinn history. And, and, and to be even more specific, for instance, it posits that the United States of America did not begin with the Declaration of Independence. Now, everybody, left, right, and center, going to your question of unity and the United States, e pluribus unum, right, out of, out, out of many one, uh, this, this wonderful credo of our nation. Uh, the 1619 Project says, uh, contra uh, history, uh, that the United States began when the slave ships came to the coastlands of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, everyone knows that that's not the case. In fact, there was slavery in America long before that, I think introduced into the DNA of, our, of what became our nation, uh, you know, by the, by, by the Spanish. But when you are a little person, and uh, you trust your teacher and you trust the textbook or you trust the curriculum or you trust the social media. And this kind of misleading information is poured out, uh, you know, into you uh, beginning sometimes in pre-K all the way through high school. The kind of unity and one story, one history America that I think was so beautifully on display at the Super Bowl and so many other places, by the way, uh, I, I think it negates uh, and it redirects that magnificent American story. And what I did not want to do in this book and what I expressly do not do is to kind of seek to replicate a, a progressive ideology with a more conservative ideology. I mean, let ideology be the enemy of history. Uh, you know, there are many national sins in the history of our country. We ought to say that. Uh, I'm the first to say it. Uh, but, we, but, but we ought not also say that because there are national sins, we must erase uh, great figures uh, of our past. Uh, and that kind of application of the present nature of what is considered broadly acceptable morality, you know, I call it presentism, you know, applying that backwards is, uh, is not only bad history, but it's ultimately deceptive. Uh, we ought not live by lies, is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn asserted. And I think he's right. In the American experience, I think this is more true than ever. Yeah. Well, and that's good because it's not just saying, oh, learn the facts and the figures, because that is an important thing. And and I know that we would all admit that we maybe don't uh, haven't put our put our minds to that well enough. But it's also those those moral lessons and the again, uh, really putting it to practice and, and infusing it in our hearts and recognizing that there are are commonalities there of, of great virtues that we need to chase after. I do want to say, because again, there we're going to have a collective uh, group of folks, especially younger adults, which is most of our audience here, who are going to say, okay, but Tim, we got to address this question because this is what I either believe or I hear it all the time. And that's this idea of, you know, what does it look like then for us, especially as believers? 
how do we appreciate, honor, and fight for our freedom in this country or any great nation around the world without conflating that with our citizenship in heaven? Because so many people say, you know, we I read the Bible, Tim. I know what God says about, like, this isn't even my home. So what am I supposed to do with that? How can we marry the two? Well, I am first and foremost a Christian, and the narrative that you outline is the golden narrative of this book. You know, uh, it's one of the remarkable things, isn't it, taken from St. Augustine, that at the same time we are citizens of heaven, we are also citizens of a real place. Uh, and uh, and we know, because it, we are taught this in the Bible, literally from the book of Genesis until the book of, of the Revelation, we are taught that we have a duty to be good citizens in the place where God places us, in the time, uh, locale, and century where he places us. I'll ring the bell backwards, if I may. Uh, you know, it's an honor, duty, and privilege to be alive in this time as Christians. But we ought never to confuse uh, you know, our ultimate citizenship in heaven uh, with our duties and obligations this side of eternity. But that's not to say we don't have obligations this side of eternity, whether it's being a great host, uh, you know, of radio uh, or it's working uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, or it's uh, being a missionary or whatever our vocation is. The vocation does not change. Our professions change. Uh, our locale changes. Uh, many things change. But our vocation is a constant because Jesus Christ is the constant. And I think it's very important, this side of eternity, to commit ourselves to telling the truth uh, and being comfortable with the fact that not every chapter of American life, just like every chapter of our personal lives, um, you know, is not, as they say, flowers and sunshine. It's a fallen, broken, uh, sinful world. We have, at one level, as good readers— we have to have, I like what, what Lionel Trilling once wrote. He said, we have a moral duty to be intelligent. I like that. I, I think as Christians, and Lionel Trilling was not a Christian, but I think we do have a moral duty uh, you know, to be intelligent. Cognition is a gift. Reason and faith, they go together. They're not opposed. And so we can use our reason and our faith, and we can say, let me learn more about life in the 18th century or the 19th century or the 20th century. And let me be, you know, an honest broker of what the facts say. And, uh, and I think it's a beautiful way to live. It, it gives us a very healthy culture, and it gives us, I think, a profound understanding of this remarkable joy that we call history. It's, uh, it's fun to read and to learn about the past. Yeah, that's good. Well, I definitely want to, um, there are a couple things I want to hit here. So I want to get a little bit practical here. And that is, we're now in 2023. How in the world do we only have another year left before another national election? Like, I don't even know. I just lost the last three years of my life. But you have got to help us. Um, you're, you're out there in Washington, D.C. You hear this much more than we do. You have much more the pulse on what's going on. A lot of folks, especially younger adults, millennials, Gen Z, are still struggling with election exhaustion from the last go-round and what came out yeah. of that, January 6th, riots, everything, all the narratives around that. How are we going to go about um, looking forward into this upcoming political season, the debates, the ads, everything, the, the constant news cycle, 
let us know practically how to enter into this with hope, with a sense of wisdom, a sense of sanity. <laughs> and what what's your advice for a younger generation to navigate this space? Well, I know that you have a marvelous international uh, audience. I'm a great and confirmed and longtime fan of Boundless. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, I want to share, if I may, uh, one of the most important foreign visitors America ever had. Uh, in 1831, uh, a man, a Frenchman, a French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville, came to the United States. And by the way, he traveled everywhere. Uh, he really embedded himself. Uh, and he may have been the first important foreign visitor who truly embedded himself uh, in the United States uh, in the early 19th century. And uh, he came up with a remarkable book, a series of books called Democracy in America. He looked at us and he took our pulse and tempo and temperature. What did he conclude? What, uh, one of the things that he concluded that I think is totally relevant to the next uh, go round, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal, a conservative, none of the above or all of the above, depending on the day of the week or time of the day, Tocqueville shared what I consider to be a very essential insight. He said that liberty cannot be established without morality. In other words, he felt that the other side of freedom, that the other side of, uh, of liberty was virtue, that moral excellence, not just in the citizenry, but in the leaders was essential. Yes, he was interested, and we should be, uh, in the policies, family, marriage, parenting, human life, religious liberty. Uh, you know, now we're into a debate about pronouns, you know? I mean, all of these things, ultimately, that begin in culture end up in the public square. And it seems to me that as men and women of faith, wherever God has placed us on this beautiful globe, and of course, I speak as an American, I think it's important to imbibe from the wisdom and the unflinching clarity of Tocqueville that virtue is preeminent, virtue matters, that morality to the sustenance of, of democracy uh, is this very refreshing tonic in spring. And I think that it's really okay and not bad manners, even in 21st century America and the world, to still say right and wrong matter good and evil are objectively true. And we ought to apply, as I do, in toward a more perfect union, this whole idea. Uh, and may I say, that's why I give it the subtitle, you know, the cultural and, you know, uh, moral case for teaching the American story. Culture leads and, and, uh, and public policy is downstream from culture. And we ought to pay attention to healthy and we ought to pay attention to unhealthy culture as we think about applying it going forward. Yeah. So I'm assuming that, you know, we know, you know, candidates will throw their hats in the ring. Some have uh, already more to come. Obviously, we need to be prayerful about this. We need to be looking at the facts. We need to be thinking of who is going to be a good guide for the nation in the in the place that we're in now with the, the good, the bad, the struggles, you know, whether uh, on, on every level in that sense. So um, would you say, I mean, our, your encouragement to us really in, in being prayerful and, and really seeing that through a through a wise lens of what it looks like to to move forward with the practical decisions that will have to be made? 
You know, uh, I'm so glad you asked that as well, almost as a bookend to the second question, because they, they fit together, you know, like, like a Lego brick. Um, and here's what I want to say. I begin the book uh, by sharing my first meeting with a man uh, who I deeply respect, David McCullough. He's now deceased, but he was and is uh, one of the most important historians of the entire 20th century. Uh, he is a towering figure. And believe it or not, as I share in the book, the very first time I met him, he told me he was suffering from insomnia. I thought, gee, that's an interesting icebreaker. <laughs> and the reason he started uh, our, our friendship that way is because he wanted me to know that the basis of his insomnia was he uh, had regular meetings with the political class. He had regular meetings with cultural leaders. And he was always dumbfounded and shocked by the fact that they put such a preeminence on politics, but they knew nothing of history. I, I think that one of the things that David shared with me is, uh, is part of the narrative of this book, that there are ramifications and implications for constitutional, historic, and cultural illiteracy. And that doesn't mean that everybody who's listening to us or anybody who was ever born, you know, needs to always feel that they have to have a 100 percent on a proverbial history test. That's that's not the assertion or the assumption. What it is, is, is that you have to know things and that to be a good citizen, it's worth understanding the antecedents, the, the foundation, the basis of what makes this uh, a rather exceptional country, not a perfect country. That's why the title of the book is from the preamble to the Constitution, toward a more perfect union. We're always moving, we pray, further toward the beautiful, the just, the true. Those, that, that's aspirational. That's very American. It's in our DNA. Mm -hmm. um, but, but never perfect. Uh, there was only one perfect person, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But that does not in any manner negate the fact that we have to understand some of the basics. And it's important to be good citizens to be as informed as we possibly can be. And history and culture help shape that. Yeah, that's good. Well, Jesus would get my vote um, if he threw... <laughs> <laughs> threw his hat in the ring, but that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna rely on him anyway, prayerfully for guidance yes, uh, in this next season. Okay, my last question for you in the minute or so we have left is a fun one, um, because one thing that you have personally benefited from is really going to so many places around this country where American history happened and where there are still through battlefields, through monuments, through uh, things that that tell the stories. Uh, they're just really neat and special places. I'd love to just hear what are a couple of your favorites, the most meaningful ones where you really felt a connection of like, I'm experiencing where history happened. I'm very honored to be asked that question. It's the perfect final question. <laughs> and I have three of them. The first one is Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Anybody uh, who knows anything about revolutionary history needs to know and visit Valley Forge. <laughs> the fact that the Continental Army somehow providentially, and I do stress providentially with three underscores, providentially got through that winter in the worst possible way to go on to defeat the most powerful empire in the history of the world, the British Empire, is nothing short of God-ordained. And the fact that George Washington was our commanding general uh, is not a coincidence. And whenever I go to Valley Forge, in fact, I'll be going there a little later this year, um, I am always 
honored to be in what I consider to be a rather transcendent place. The second place I love is Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, uh, to go to Little Round Top and to go to the very geographical place that but for a relatively speaking handful um, of, of Union soldiers uh, in that place uh, would have had the Confederacy prevail uh, shows you that history is often uh, a close run thing. Uh, and uh, I, I keep a portrait in my office of the hero of Little Round Top, who famously wrote that in great deeds, something abides. And I think that's right. Uh, and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is one of the great Americans. And the third uh, and final place that I would uh, commend to people is standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. I'm a conservative. He was a progressive. But Theodore Roosevelt, who I think is one of the absolute great Americans and one of the truly great presidents, he said that every American should at least one time in their life stand on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. You realize that it's an extraordinary country, but it's also an extraordinarily beautiful country. And uh, in the premise of your question, uh, you asked, uh, oh, I've honored, uh, I'm very honored to have visited all 50 states. Uh, the National Park uh, Service uh, is a hero of mine. Uh, the Revolutionary War battle sites, the Civil War battle sites. Uh, I think we need to take our children and our grandchildren to them and to really share the great American story and to go to these places and to kind of absorb and to soak in what actually happened there. It's, yeah. it's a really joyful thing. That's so cool. Well, Tim, um, I really, we're really privileged to have heard this from you. Um, really, the, the fact that you penned this in the book, the fact that you're sharing it with us and just your, your wisdom born out of experience, as well as just your heart for um, how, how God has given you a joy for this and passing it on to these coming generations. Folks, um, I want you to know that this book that we have been talking about today, right now, Toward a More Perfect Union, The Moral and Cultural Case for Teaching the Great American Story, we're going to make this available to you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So you just go to Boundless, you search for 788, that's this week's show, and you'll see the cover there, you click on it, you give a gift for you know, whatever you can afford. And for the stuff that we already do that you love, you're part of the Boundless family, maybe it's just giving up a latte this week or a couple lattes, um, we'll make it happen. We will send you a copy of Tim's book as our thank you to you. So um, you go ahead and make that happen. Tim, thanks again for being part of this conversation and part of our family here at Boundless. Oh, well, it was really fun. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to have been on the program. Come.
Well, folks, we are here at the end of the show, opening up our inbox as we do when we answer one of your questions. And we always bring in one of our fantastic experts. And this week we have Dave Davis. He is our medical research analyst here at Focus. So all things ethical implications around health and medicine and and all that that implies. So, Dave, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good to have you. Okay, you are our guy for the day because here's what our listeners asking. Uh, she says, recently someone asked me about the topic of embryo freezing. I know of a Christian friend who chose to freeze her embryos when she was in her mid-30s so she can have a family later on in life. I'd like to understand how I can navigate conversations with Christians and non-Christians about this topic. That's great. It's an interesting question that she's asking because a lot of people are looking at this and they're saying, well, you know, is this God's will? Should I be putting off uh, having a family till later? Uh, Is that my choice to make or should I just let God be in control of that? That's one of those things that God is silent on. He doesn't give us a whole lot of principles that dictate this sort of thing. But there are questions that a woman needs to ask when she's considering freezing embryos aside. Uh, One is just a matter of priorities. For a believer, we know that family and children are a crucial part of God's design for us. It doesn't mean everybody's supposed to have all the children they could possibly have all the time. It just means that that's God's general plan for us. And if family and children are like way down on the list of your priorities, that's a problem. If children are like an accessory for the good life, that's a problem. Those just don't sync with God's plans for people. But there are practical concerns as well. And one of those being as a woman ages, fertility declines. So uh, this particular woman who's freezing embryos away in her 30s is, and is going to get back to them later, she's going to find out that it's often a lot more difficult to get pregnant and to carry a pregnancy as you've passed through your 30s. And, you know, a lot of women don't know this. And a lot of companies are selling this as part of their reproductive benefits package. And really, the benefits are accruing to the company. The woman's going to find out this wasn't the benefit I thought it was going to be. So that's a very practical concern that women need to be thinking about. But then there are ethical questions and ethical concerns. And There are a number, but I would just point out the pro-life ethical concern that we have. Each embryo is a human life created in the image of God. It's easy to get sold on that image of this is a blob of cells. It's not. It's just a very early human life. And because it's created in God's image, it needs to be protected. It deserves to be valued as such. Well, when you freeze an embryo away, not every embryo is going to survive 
a freeze-thaw cycle. So automatically, you've put lives at risk. But then there are other issues to consider. For example, what if this woman gets down the road and decides, I don't want kids. People change their minds all the time. Maybe she finds herself in a relationship where her husband says, no, I don't want to have kids. Or maybe she's in other life circumstances that would make choosing to have a family or start a family a lot more difficult. What if she develops a medical condition uh, like severe endometriosis or she needs to have a hysterectomy and is physically incapable of carrying the child that she had frozen away and was hoping for. Uh, God forbid, what if she dies? What's going to happen with these embryos? Well, there's only a few things that can happen. A best-case scenario, embryos could be donated to a couple who can use those. They may be having infertility problems themselves, and they could adopt those embryos. That's a best-case scenario. It is also a very, very, very long shot. Uh, what is most likely to happen is one of two things. They're either just going to be discarded, so those lives will be destroyed, or they will be donated to science, which is a nice euphemism for they're going to be sacrificed for scientific research. They're going to be destroyed. So a woman really needs to think hard about all of these things if she's considering freezing embryos away. Yeah, that's good. Good point and good direction as far as like helping a listener think through like, yeah, this isn't just a one and done. It's not a simple solution. There are a lot of caveats here and we don't know the future. And so I think this listener asking this question, it's such a good point to have a, a wise conversation around it and approach it prayerfully. So Dave, thanks so much for weighing in on that. We really Absolutely. appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, folks, uh, that is it for this week's show. As always, we do want to hear from you, so you can write to us at editor at boundless.org, and maybe we will answer your question in the future, or just write to us and say hello and say, you know, hey, happy happy March. Um, we appreciate that, too. So anyway, either way, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family. Lauren enjoyed listening to Focus on the Family programs as a child. Now, as an adult, she wants to help strengthen and support today's families. I enjoy being able to give money to an organization that can do with it what I could never do on my own. I can't possibly reach millions of people or thousands of people like they can. I don't have the level of resources that Focus on the Family does. So I am giving money every month to invest in people that I've never even seen, that I, I don't know their names or their faces or their backgrounds, but I know that I'm able to make a difference in their life due to giving money to such a great organization. I'm Jim Daly. We need more investors like Lauren. Become a monthly giver to Focus on the Family by calling 800-the-letter-A-and-the-word-family or donate at focusonthefamily.com slash family.